0: Welcome to the Cornerstone Christian Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jim Tarr. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit cccbasalt.com. Good, so you're saying to me this week, Pastor Jim, can you not keep our church out of the news? (laughs) Last Monday we hosted David Barton from Wall Builders, and we hosted him 25 years ago, and it was a different country then, and Nobody cared, and it was just fantastic evening. Had over um, 3,000 people show up in Florida, and it wasn't considered unusual to stand for the Constitution and our Founding Fathers. If you have any concerns about who this man was, this, this propagandist who came, I just want you to know that you can go on wallbuilders.com and find out more about him. All he does is share about the biblical heritage of America so we welcome you to, be, um, to, to go online and find out for yourself exactly what it is that he espouses. I was speaking to a church in Colorado Springs, and they hosted him just a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and there was never a ripple anywhere. So sometimes it depends on where you are, right? So we live in a very unique valley. So what I want to be able to do today, and I'm, I just want you to know next week Lauren Boebert is here, and then I'm going to just get into the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to go through the book of First Peter. So that's how we're going to um, be spending the next several weeks then. But I felt as though I owe it to all of you because, you know, you come this morning to a church that was in the newspaper. And there is a response to the article in the Aspen Daily News on, um, to the June 14th article. And it's, it says, a recent article further demonstrates how we need separation of church and state in America. This is an absurd, uh, absurd institution, referring to our church, that defies any rules and regulations. They showed us this during the pandemic. It's despicable that these so-called churches enjoy tax-free status. This has to change. If they're going to spew their misinformation, it should not be at taxpayer expense. Let's put an end to this chicanery. Um, Contact your representatives. So, you know, when we hear something like that, I just want to talk about it for a few moments. And I had responded to the article as well. And I want to talk today about what is the role of the church? And do you believe in the role of the church in society today? And I think it's a valid question. And I want you to know in all of this stuff that's going on, I am constantly measuring my heart and praying and asking the Lord for wisdom But I want to ask myself today, I want to ask us today, what do we really believe? Will we be put off and concede that our worldview, which is a Christian worldview, does not warrant being a part of the political dialogue? Is your voice not allowed in the public square and are you intimidated by the notion that your values are immediately disqualified? I just want to say today that there is a great movement towards secularism in America and the qualification of anything that's spiritual. So the first thing I wanted to do today is talk about that. We don't realize today that America really is being led by a philosophy rooted in secular humanism. And if I look this week at the tenets of secular humanism, and I just want to, for you to look at these things with me today and begin to ask yourself, but isn't that a religion? Merely because a worldview says there is no God, America has come to believe that that means that view can be in our public schools. It can be declared in our public schools. It can be declared in uh, um, anything that is supported, even in our universities. I recently had a phone call from one of our kids that was in Cornerstone Christian School. And starting right out at, at Mesa State, immediately they began to disqualify the role of the Word of God in that class. Now, that's allowed, but I'm guaranteed that no one could advocate for the Word of God. And it's, it's deemed that, that is, um, there needs to be a separation between church and state. So get this idea. I'm going to have to move fast. You guys, I practice on you on Sunday mornings, okay? <laughs> no, you get a good word. So one worldview says there is no God. Another worldview says there is a God. One is qualified to be involved in the political forum, being supported even by taxpayer monies, and the other one is being encouraged, you're not allowed to speak, you're not allowed to influence legislation, you're not allowed for that to be supported in any way. So then you get this idea of separation of church and state rooted in the idea of why should churches be tax exempt? Because our founding fathers believed that what you can tax, you can control. You can ultimately control the existence of something by taxing it. But now we're finding out that what the suggestion is, is that we're going to remove your tax exemption, and that's being used as a means of control. It comes actually against the very um, heart of our founding fathers, and we under- they understood this, is that the scriptures say the tithe belongs to the Lord. The tithe belongs to the Lord. They didn't want to touch what people have said. Okay, government, you can tax me but I have this certain amount of income that I am going to give to the Lord. And so then what the founding fathers believed is that that should not be taxed again. So I want to talk about this idea about secular humanism, which is rooted in the idea that there's no creator and there is no God. Now, what I want us to understand is our Western civilization rules and laws that have governed us for centuries, are rooted in the idea that man is made in the image of God and that man is intrinsically valuable. Therefore, so many of our laws, like thou shalt not murder, is rooted in the idea, why? Because that other human being has intrinsic value. That person carries the image of God, see, right? And so, but then also when that child is born, you look at his physicality and you say their physical body, their gender even is a revelation of being created in the image of God. So that if you remove God and the idea of being created, then it releases within all legislation uh, laws that are passed that don't value life. Or they will decide this, that some life is not worthy of life. And that begins to cause everything that has held us together for centuries begins to collapse. So I want us to think about some of the doctrines of, of, of the uh, secular humanism and I think that we have those to show over my shoulder. The first one, I want us to challenge today that, that really the ideas that govern our, our nation right now as far as secular humanism is actually a religion. It has a doctrine of origins. I took this from the humanist manifesto that you can find online. They have everything coded. They've got their own catechism, if you would. They've referred to, this is what it says in in their first point. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. So now think about that. One worldview says the universe is and it was not created. Another world says, no, the universe is and it was created. And yet the government says one can have a voice and the other can't. But isn't that, just because you say there is no God, isn't that as religious as saying there is a God? I mean, if you think about it. So could they have a doctrine of origins. The second one, a doctrine on the nat- nature of man. On the third point of secular humanism, it states, holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. Now, so what they're saying here is, is that, that uh, human beings are just really biological. They're just an organic Organic organism, that doesn't make sense. But the truth is, is that's all they are. And so there's no value. They don't recognize, hey, this idea that a man has a soul, we just reject that entire idea. Okay, so there's one group that says man doesn't have a soul. The other one says, no, man does have a soul. It's rooted in the idea that God breathed into man and man became a living soul. It says that in the book of Genesis. So that he is body and soul. He was made out of the dust of the ground and he carries within himself consciousness and awareness, and even a desire to worship that comes out of the soul. So we have to ask ourselves, in all fairness, if we want to have a fair government, one person says there is no dualism, there is no soul to man, but the other one says, no, there is a soul, but then our government says, but one's allowed to influence government policy and can even be supported by taxpayer funds, and the other one, they're saying, it can't. So let's just go back to the idea of basic fairness. So then let's go to point number three. Point number three addresses the source of man's religious nature. Man's religious nature. Now, this is the fourth tenet of secular humanism. Let's read that. Humanism recognizes that man's religious culture and civilization, as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of a gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into a particular culture is largely molded by that culture. So what they're saying here, basically, is is that the source of man's religious inclination is only rooted in the fact that when he was primitive, he was trying to explain what was going on around him. So he would develop ideas of deities to try to explain things that he couldn't explain just by looking at the natural. And yet, if we look at the faith of the Christian, what does the Christian say? Well, Proverbs 20, verse 27 says this, the spirit of a person is the lamp of the Lord. Searching all the innermost parts of his being. The biblical worldview says this a reason that a man, humanity tends towards religion is because his spiritual nature, given by God, is God's lamp inside him. He's not religious just searching for answers. Well, that's part of it, isn't it? But he's also religious because he was created in the image of God and desires to get back to his creator, and his heart is the lamp of the Lord. It's a light that he's born with. So then, the next tenet that I want to talk about on the Humanist Manifesto, it places itself on equal authority concerning the existence of God. Here's the sixth tenet of secular humanism. We are convinced that the time has passed. We are convinced that the time has passed for theism, the belief in God, deism, the belief in a God who created but now he's removed, Modernism and the several varieties of new thought. So I I just want to look today at that. That's the sixth tenet of secular humanism. And it's just really saying that we have convictions and doctrines ourselves that involve the idea of, of an involved God theism or deism, a disconnected God or any kind of deity of any source. So one group of people says God doesn't exist, and we're past that. And another group says God does exist. But recent articles, objections to our church's position, and having David Barton here would suggest that the ones who do not believe in God actually are the ones that have the right to influence government, and the ones who believe are theistic don't have a right. So let's look at the next point I wanted to look at. And I just, you can pull these offline. I did it this week. And um, just looked at the several points. In point five, it addresses the chief end of man. In the eighth tenet of secular humanism, it says this. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development, development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist social passion. When you look at that right there, you begin to realize that they're talking about the chief end of man. What was, what is, why does man exist? The humanists would say man exists for the here and now. We're basing laws right now in our culture based on the here and now. Abortion is rooted in secular humanism, which is this do what is best and most convenient for you in the here and now there are no eternal consequences or or effects of the choice that you make it's a here and now kind of living so that the chief end of man the real reason for life needs to be found in the pursuit of your personal development in the fulfillment of the here and now. But the Westminster Christian Shorter Catechism has said this to the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So there is one group that says live for the here and now. That's allowed, another group is being suggested because we are becoming, did you see the headlines yesterday? I don't know why it came out on, right before Father's Day, but in the recent Gallup poll, 81% of Americans now believe in God. You say, that sounds great. In 1967, it was 98% of Americans believed in God. It shows you the relationship of faith in God and the effects upon culture. So then I want to go to the ninth tenet of the secular humanist tenets. The humanist considers the role of worship. In their ninth tenet, it says this, in the place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, The humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. So basically, you're asking yourself that question. Is there a strong opinion about the role of the church and of religious institutions and how they function? But they are saying, no, the social orders and our institutions need to be based around man's pursuit of what it had just talked about, personal fulfillment. So I want to ask this, is atheism a religion? There is one, the secular humanists would say this, churches, those days are over, and we're going to create institutions that support our worldview. Now, the Christian says that Jesus said that upon this rock of the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One person says, no, this is what the social institutions need to look like because the church is done. But the other one says, no, the church is still active today and Christ is still moving. One is allowed to be a part of the political dialogue, and the other is saying, you need to be disqualified. When we understand also this is that the Bible says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the humanist wants to elevate the human significance and order when Jesus has taught us that every knee is going to bow before him. The next tenet, it encourages the formation of institutions that would replace the church. So we're still with me. Thank you, Sal. That's so awesome. It encourages the formation of institutions that would replace the church. So in um, next point, 13, and it sounds like the last. Religious humanism maintains that all associations and institutions exist for the fulfillment of human life. The intelligent evaluation, transformation, control, and direction of such associations and institutions with a view to the enhancement of human life is the purpose and program of humanism. Certainly religious institutions, their ritual Forms, ecclesiastical methods, and communal activities must be reconstituted as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. One is calling for the dissolving of the church, and the other is is saying, no, God is still moving forward. I want to ask yourself, in fairness, are you put off by someone who writes to the editor and says, there needs to be a wall of separation between church and state? I would contend that those who say there is no God, that in that argument, it at least carries as much value because it's a personal opinion as the one who says there is a God. If this is really a free culture, then every opinion ought to be able to have a voice. Are you with me on this, right? you understand in this right now let's look at the final one it's the the go, it's the goal of secular humanism is to shape society with its moral code here's what the 14th tenet says the humanists are firmly convinced that ex- existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. Now, look at that. That's just really addressing um, economic freedom or capitalism, if you would. It's linked to a secular idea. Why? Because the government replaces, replaces the vacuum of God when God is removed. So what they're saying there is economic freedom, people desiring to go out and make a living and to be able to, out of that freedom, earn, that needs to be brought down. It is inadequate, profit-motivated society. A socialized, socialism, and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. Now this is, these tenets were, made long ago, I saw them when I was a young man. But the truth is this, is that here we find about equitable distribution. You're hearing the word equity all the time, aren't you? It's rooted in atheism. And actually this idea of equity is not about equality. Our founding fathers believed in equality. All men are created equal. But equity means everyone should have the same result. So whether you make good choices or bad choices, whether you're hardworking or you just rather lounge, At the end of the day, everybody should have equity. The same results. So the goal of humanism, humanism, this is is ironic to me. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Free, right, I want a free society. Universal, that's that one world approach to how we do things, in which people voluntarily, listen to this, people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate. Did you ever try to get humanity to cooperate? (laughs) You know what, here's the whole thing. You can't insist on that happening voluntarily. It takes a ton of control of people's choices. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. You will cooperate. The World Economic Forum says, you will own nothing and you will be happy. You will be happy. Which are, many of our DC leaders go to those events. Humanists demand a shared life, they demand. I thought this was about freedom. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. So, I just, what is my point there? There is among atheists just as much an insistence on aligning as there ever has been with any religious order. I want to say this. The nature of humanism gives to people the moral code that is missing since we took the Ten Commandments out of our public schools and out of our courthouse walls. And I've been amazed. People are desperately searching to be virtuous, And it is completely shifted right now. So that to be virtuous in our culture right now sometimes is that you have to qualify that some immoral choices are actually good. We live in a culture now, the further it rejects God, where good is called evil. The Bible predicted it. That good will be called evil and evil will be called good. And now we're finding out that corporations insist that you better include certain things in your logo or otherwise you didn't measure up to the corporate code. Everything's political right now. You can't even watch sports right now without political imagery or social causes being presented. Everything now is political. So listen, I know you're just saying, but Pastor Jim, if you were right, every church in this valley would be hammered, right? I mean, so I, I walk through that process of just saying, Lord, make sure that I'm not out there, you know, just on my own, like some kind of whatever. But in all of this, I think that we have to realize that we must, in our day, stand for the biblical principles, and churches need to be churches of the Word of God. And the gospel, the root of the gospel is this, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. And it took 2,000 years, finally, for a nation to be birthed by Christians who were searching for religious liberty. And finally it happened. And because it was based upon biblical principles, it exploded into success at levels that the world had never witnessed before. All because the principles of the kingdom of God work. And so while people are righteously pursuing a desperately to find right and wrong, let me ask you this. Who in the culture has God established to be that voice? If it's not the church, who will it be? Now we find out that there are politicians, and you know that they are actually saying, well, my personal faith and belief is that, you know, um, abortion is wrong. And then at the other side, but then they say, but it's not mine to force my belief systems on somebody else. But I'm telling you something. Someone's religious system, whether secular humanist, atheist, or theist, believing in God, someone's values are going to dominate the day. It's just as simple as that. And so, listen, if you knew me my whole life, I have never gone against the grain. I... You know, I, I've, never, I've never rebelled, and my heart pounds if I see the flashing red and blue lights in my rearview mirror. I <laughs> haven't been looking for trouble. But we have to ask ourselves a question, is atheism, secular humanism, is that a... Religious code, do you know when it was tried before the Supreme Court, they said that it carries, the Supreme Court decided, that it carries the same characteristics of a religion. Atheism does, even down to having its own group of commandments or alignments that you must follow. Yet in that same decision, they just said, but it's not a religion, but it just acts like a religion. So secular humanism is protected and even supported because it's not a religion, and yet it's allowed to hold strong views against anyone who does have a religion. Well, then doesn't that put it on the equal playing field? It seems so to me. But there is no God in it. Therefore, it's not a religion. But did you know that Buddhism has no God either? And yet that's acknowledged to be a religion. When Pam and I were invited to pray at the governor's prayer breakfast, and that was totally by accident, as you can only imagine. One of the people at the prayer breakfast was a non-theist. He didn't believe in God. But he's at a prayer breakfast. That's got to be a lonely conversation. Probably feels like a wife talking to her husband. A non-theist at a prayer breakfast. Why does that even organization exist? Let's all get together and talk about what we don't believe in. I imagine tithing is rough. This whole idea about the separation between church and state is not in the Constitution, and almost everybody thinks it is, that it's in the Constitution. It's not. It was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. You might not even know this, but he, Thomas Jefferson, didn't sign the Constitution of the United States. So the one who even talked about was about, um, in a letter about a wall of separation between church and state, was an anti-federalist. He didn't believe that the government should have any overarching role. So when He wrote this letter in 1802 in response to what had been written to him. The Danbury Baptists had written this to him because he had been elected. And the Danbury Baptists, you have to understand, were a minority. They weren't like the Episcopalians or some of the other big denominations. So they were really worried about the religious freedom. So they engaged their political leader with their concerns. Now, in their concerns, they wrote this, what religious privileges we enjoy, what religious privileges we enjoy in the state of Connecticut, as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of a free man. What were they saying there? We live in the state of Connecticut. And you know what Connecticut has told us? We have granted you the right to exist. And they're saying, no, wait a minute. A state can't grant the right for a church to exist. That's an inalienable right that's granted to people by God. And it's unacceptable in a nation of free men. Wow, that's very interesting, isn't it? So they're just saying this. And listen, this is the whole thing. With the 501c3 issue right now, it's coming, I'm telling you, it's coming, folks. Tax exemption. We are a 501c3. You have to apply to be a 501c3. Now, what we're finding out is that they're they're going to levels that they never went to before. We didn't have to worry about it. The 501c3 is an appeal to the state for your right to exist as a nonprofit organization. Once, though, this is where it's gotten tricky because now, after COVID, it revealed a lot of things once we have this granted by the state the right to exist as a church and be a nonprofit, what they're saying, you can exist by virtue of our allowing you to exist. Now that was never a conflict for me in the past, but then suddenly we find out during COVID it exposed what? It exposed this, is that they were gonna say to churches, you're non-essential right? And even our, our Christian school, there was a veiled threat about our tax-exempt status, see? So they're threatening our non-profit existence, using that to control us, where the founding father says taxation cannot be used to control. And so out of all of that, we're, the church is beginning to say, wait a minute, the government just said we are non-essential, But, here's the thing, if the government gave us the right to exist, they have the right to tell us we're non-essential. We're existing by their permission. The Danbury Association, writing to Thomas Jefferson, they said, actually, what was the word that they used there? They said, we find it degrading. Degrading that we are told that we can exist because the state of Connecticut has told us you're allowed to exist. But actually, we should exist because it's our inalienable right granted to us by God. So Thomas Jefferson, understand that that's the root of it all. And so Thomas Jefferson responded in a letter, and this is what he said, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislators should, now here's where the phrase comes from, it's not in the Constitution, it's in a letter. doesn't disqualify it. They should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Thomas Thomas Jefferson was saying this, as far as, where were they running from? The Church of England, which the state said, you have to worship in the Church of England. That's why the pilgrims came over. They weren't allowed to worship. The government in England was saying, you have the right to exist. Only if we say you have the right to exist, And no, you can't. You have to go to the Church of England. They didn't want that. And so what is Thomas and Jefferson doing? He's saying, well, let me speak to you as free men. You have the right to exist granted to you by God. Government can never come in and tell you whether you can exist or how you can exist. That was granted by the Lord. And there's a wall of separation between church and state. And what, is he, what was he saying there? I want you to know that as a Christian group, you are protected to worship and exist how you see fit. It wasn't trying to keep the church out of the government. He was saying government needs to stay out of the church. That was the very rule of it. The metaphor of wall of separation was so that government could not overwhelm the people. America was birthed in the pursuit of religious freedom. It was the intent of the First Amendment that government cannot encroach upon you. You have the ability to have the free exercise of religion. That is your First Amendment right. Here's what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Make no law respecting whether a church can be established or not. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. See, now what people are doing about religious freedom today is they're saying, you have the freedom. Look, America's free, religious freedom. You can go to your churches and you can worship there. But actually, it doesn't talk about freedom of worship. It talks about the free exercise. In other words, you're allowed to be active. You are allowed to exercise your faith just like anybody else exercises their faith, even if it's a non-theistic faith. Are you still with me? It's not freedom of worship. It's free exercise of religion. I contend that... Government can affect our present and our future. If the government can affect my present and my future, I have an inalienable right to discuss, advocate, and participate in government. When they can threaten with 18 months in jail, or they can close our churches as non-essential, and yet then determine that bars and pot shops and abortion clinics are open, I believe I have an inalienable right to be a part of whatever is going on in my nation. If my government can affect my existence, I have a right. If the government can affect how I exist, or whether I'm valuable or not, it's important to engage. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, said this, because people said, Don't get involved in politics. He says this, politics is simply the process whereby we decide how we're going to live as a society. There's no way to be apolitical. If you have any stake in how it is that we as a society are going to live What our rules are going to be, what kinds of rights and human dignity we're going to respect, what we're going to stand for, and our place in the world. When people say, Jim, don't get political, I I just say, but what's not political? Family now is political. Marriage now is political. God-given sexuality is not political. I can't go anywhere without being confronted with politics. So if the church just says, don't be political, I want you to know something. We will be totally irrelevant and voiceless and ineffective. When we had a small government at one time, the ch- it was very compatible to the church. Just keep it small. It has grown to monstrous proportions. It is now getting involved in every detail of our life, and particularly in how we're allowed to raise our children, and what our family should be, which is really crossing the line. There was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he he lived in Germany from 1906 to 1945. If you had a chance to be born in a certain place at a certain time, would you want it to be Germany in 1906 to 1945 during World War II? anti-Semitism was growing in Germany and it was becoming unbearable. But what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who was born, was arguably one of our best theologians in the 20th century. He said even more unbearable than anti-Semitism, I mean, what could be more unbearable than that, was the church's silence towards it. Church, in, in my um, One of the articles, I'm a subscriber to Christian History. One of them wrote The Life and Death of a Modern Martyr, and it was about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the author was Jeffrey Kelly. And he wrote Bonhoeffer's first public reaction to the anti-Jewish legislation had come early in April 1933. He talked to a group of pastors on the church and the Jewish question in his address he urged the churches to first boldly challenge the government first boldly challenge the government to justify such blatantly immoral laws. Second he demanded that the church come to the aid of victims baptized or unbaptized. So whether they were Christian or not Finally, he declared that the church should jam the spokes of the wheel of state should the persecution of Jews continue. At that point, many of the gathered clergy left in a huff, convinced they had heard sedition. I'm still quoting the article. Bonhoeffer was stymied too in his efforts to stir up in the church a more strenuous opposition to the cruel persecution of the Jewish people. To him, church synods looked out for their own interest. They lacked heart for the more urgent issue. How to interact? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me start that sentence again. They lacked heart for the more urgent issue how to counteract the abuse and denial of civil, civil rights within Germany. He decried their lack of sensitivity to the plight of pastors in prison for their dissent. Whether the church leaders spoke up for the Jews now became Bonhoeffer's measure of the success or failure. Of any synod. He asked the question, Where is Abel your brother? Bonhoeffer's essays and lectures of the period exude his bitterness over the bishop's failure of nerve. He would frequently quote Proverbs 3 8, Who will speak up for those who are voiceless? to explain why he had to be the voice defending the Jews in Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer hated the fact that the Jews' voice was not being listened to. This was all in response to the fact that Germany was insisting that only people of Aryan blood were allowed to pastor a church. And some of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's greatest friends and allies were Christians who were Jewish. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was struggling with the fact with this idea, what is the role of the church? And don't we all wrestle with that right now? Jim, what is the role of our church in the Roaring Fork Valley? That's why I feel like I need to talk about it today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 45 years old when he died, and he had a fiance, he loved her dearly. He wrote in a letter from prison, you'd be surprised, this is point number nine, You would be surprised and perhaps even worried by my theological thoughts and the conclusions that they lead to. So he's sharing with her his struggles. And this is where I miss you most of all because I don't know anyone else with whom I could so well discuss them to have my thinking clarified. What is bothering me incessantly is the question. What Christianity really is. Or indeed who Christ really is for us today. We are moving toward a completely religionless time. Does that sound familiar? People as they are now simply cannot be religious anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious do not in the least act up to it. I'm good, I changed it on the slide. I had a typo here. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious do not in the least act up to it. And so they presumably mean something quite differently by religious. Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up being hung in the concentration camp, death camp, three weeks before the end of the war. And it's merely because he wouldn't go along with the fact that a pastor had to be of Aryan white race. He ended up saying this. Point 10, peace is the opposite of security. I wish the last 10 months had been more peaceful, personally. We would think that the opposite of peace is chaos, or the opposite of peace is war. But he actually says the opposite of peace is security. In other words, people that insist on taking the easy road will find out that they are in the opposite place of peace. In other words, peace comes with a price. And you don't feel insecure in some seasons of human history just by merely standing up for what you believe in. He had to count the costs of living in the world as a follower of Christ He said this, Jesus lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. Let me read another quote from him. The only fight which is lost is that which we give up. I'm not taking away in any way the understanding of what our church is meant to be. It's meant to be a communion of sinners who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That we are to serve one another in joy. And we can never stop doing that, no matter how hard it gets. We cannot place too much hope in political endeavors, because the only way, yes, righteousness exalts a nation, and a nation without righteous laws will collapse. But, ultimately we understand that the answer is Jesus Christ, and our deep need for a revival to transform the hearts and minds of this generation. For us, it remains to be all about the gospel, and it's amazing to me in these difficult times that we are seeing so many people come to Christ. That's why at the meeting in Eagle County where many of you were there with me and they wouldn't allow a jam-packed room of people from our church and school that we weren't even allowed to speak while they leveled accusations against us and walked out and said, if we hear one noise, we will leave the room. And at the end of that, I shared the gospel in the county meeting. You asked me, Jim, why did you do that? There were people there that were were not of our faith but wanted to stand with us for standing for freedom. The reason I did it is because I was afraid of myself. I was afraid that I might forget that it's always going to be about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to his disciples after he had risen from the dead, right before he ascended into heaven. And he said this, all authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. We are called to disciple nations, to influence nations, to influence laws, to influence leaders. Nations, Jesus said, disciple. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Still, by the strategy of understanding that uh, it, it, is, it is for Christianity and it is for the sake of individuals coming for Christ that we exist. And it will affect nations. Teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I want to encourage us as a church. We must remain strong and unwavering advocates. And be advocates for the word of God and any truth that we know. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 says this, and I'll close with this. You shall therefore take these words of mine, the Lord said to Israel. You shall take these words of mine to heart and soul, and you shall tie them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also teach them to your sons, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be increased on the land, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. So the Lord is just saying to us the importance of the word of God being taught to our sons and to our daughters for the existence and the survival of a nation. Who's going to honor the word of God if it's not the followers of the Lord? The Lord said, hey, put it on your house. You, ever meet, you should have grown up in Pennsylvania in the Appalachian Mountains. The people that painted the scripture verses all over their house were always the scary ones, right? <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, says, the Lord says, that's how you're to live. Put out the word of God. Put it right out there, what you believe in. So, I want you to say this don't be intimidated by anyone who just says, you know, churches shouldn't be involved in that. Of course they do. Why wouldn't one side tell the other side, you should have no voice? It just makes sense, doesn't it? So, I want to remind everyone today let's just rejoice in the Lord and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that wasn't a gospel message, but no, but it was about our community, it was about values. That's what it was about. And I hope that it challenged us, at least to think, whether you agreed with me or not, I hope that you thought while I was sharing today. Amen? Let's all stand up. Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, for your word and your spirit and for your life. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bless us this day. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us, please, oh God, to be humble before you, Lord. And I pray, oh God, that there would be no sign of rebellion in our hearts. Father, let us not be those who just rise up to stand against, but always, Lord, let us be those who stand for for you. We bless you in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, just very quickly, is there anyone here you've never met Jesus as your Savior? I want to invite you to give your heart to him. You can have your sins washed away, shame and guilt gone. You can come to the Lord Jesus Christ today, and, and he'll wash away everything that we've ever said, done, thought, all of it so that we can be clean to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, and to be cleared to be sons and daughters of the Lord. If you're here today and you've never given your heart to Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. First off, just raise your hand, just acknowledging this prayer is my prayer, to give my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, His closing prayer. And then also I'm gonna invite you to come here to the front, in front of your friends here today, the Lord Jesus said, if you confess to me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Very quickly, anyone here, this is today your day of salvation, you need to give your heart to Jesus. You can respond now. Father God, I just bless all these that came here today. Bless them. Let them have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God. Bless the roof over their head, their vehicles, the substance of their life, everything that's in their care. Bless their children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. I speak health and healing, provision, and the protection of Jesus in your home and in your lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast can be heard on our cccbasalt.com website, the CCC Basalt app, or your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to support our efforts financially, You have the opportunity to give at cccbasalt.com forward slash give.